Hello, and thank you for joining this latest Science AAAS webinar. This is the fourth in our series in which we address important, timely, and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. In today's webinar, we're going to tackle the topic of science communication, how to sell yourself and your science without selling out. I'm Sean Sanders, and I'm honored to once again be able to act as moderator for today's discussion. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. It now gives me great pleasure to introduce our wonderful panel with me here in the studio today. Uh, as usual, I'm going to give them each uh, an opportunity to introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about what they do and what they bring to today's discussion. Uh, just to my left is Dr. Laura Lindenfeld from the Alan Older Center for Communicating Science in Stony Brook, New York. She's Executive Director of the Center as well as Interim Dean of the School of Journalism at Stony Brook University. Next to Laura is Alexia Yuknovsky, founder and CEO of Agent Majeur, a science communication agency based in Paris, France, that helps scientists to promote their work through training, consultancy, and production. Our third panelist is Dr. Matt Savoka from the Hopkins Marine Station of Stanford University. Matt is trained as an ecologist, but has a deep passion for science communication. And our final panelist today is Dr. Laura Helmuth, health science and environment editor for the Washington Post, where she manages a team of reporters and editors covering all manner of research topics, as well as science funding and health policy. Uh, welcome to all of you, and thank, thank you. you so much thank for being you. with us. Thanks. Uh, so, Laura, we're going to start with you. If you can give us an introduction, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Looking forward to a great conversation. I feel really fortunate to direct the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. We've worked with over 15,000 scientists and medical professionals around the world in different industries. And um, it's just a pleasure to do work that helps scientists connect in genuine and clear ways, inspired by the fabulous actor, Allen Alda. Great. Thanks, Laura. Alexia? Well, as you said, I'm the founder of Agent Majeure, a science communication agency based in Paris, France. And in fact, I'm a chemical engineer myself uh, with a background in research and consulting. And I, oh, I was an actress also for six years. <laughs> and it's the combination of all these skills and experience that made me want to create a company that would provide science communication services. Um, Right now, we are helping researchers and research institutes to promote their activities. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Matt? So as you mentioned, I'm an ecologist, I guess technically a marine biologist, and a postdoctoral researcher at the Hopkins Marine Station of Stanford University. I study human impacts on marine systems, so things like how plastic pollution or fisheries bycatch are affecting our marine ecosystems that we all depend on. But more than that, I've been become really passionate, as you mentioned, in science communication. And I feel it's critical now more so than ever in the times that we find ourselves for scientists to speak out about their work and the importance of their work. And I'm happy for whatever little part I can play in that. So thank you very much for having me. Mm -hmm. Great, Matt. Thank you. And yeah. our second Laura today. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I'm really pleased that, uh, that AAAS and that all of you in the audience are really taking an interest in science communication. It's so important. Uh, and then I'm here to, to uh, give the perspective of journalists. I'm currently at the Washington Post as an editor. I've also worked at Slate Magazine, uh, Smithsonian Magazine, National Geographic, and Science Magazine, which is published by AAAS. Uh, so I'm here to you know, kind of talk about how you can work with the media to get your message out in a more efficient way and uh, in a more impactful way, and also to encourage you to leak to me. Uh, we love to cover stories that nobody else has covered. And uh, we especially like it if, if there are any whistleblowers among you, if, if there is any information you'd like to share with the Washington Post. There are seven ways to share information confidentially you can see on our website. Uh, I'm on Signal. All of our reporters have our emails available. Uh, my DMs are open on Twitter. So please you know, let us know what you think we should be covering. Great. Thank you. But don't leak through me because <laughs> I don't want to be involved. Yes. Um, great. So I, I'm going to start off by coming back to the title of this webinar, which is uh, Selling Without Selling Out. And um, it's my contention that scientists are essentially salespeople. Mm -hmm. um, they're selling their ideas, their hypotheses, and they're trying to get grants. They're trying to get people to read their, their articles and, and believe what they're doing. Um, so um, what we want to talk about today is how scientists can most effectively communicate and sell their product to their audience, depending on what that audience is. So. Um, 
maybe I can sort of go around the table and ask each of you how you think science can most effectively be communicated. So Laura, we'll start with you. First of all, and I think everybody on this panel would agree, there's no easy tips for how to communicate well. It takes mm -hmm. work. Um, I've heard Alan say, you know, if you give a piano player a tip, yeah, learn how to read music. Mm -hmm. Practice. <laughs> it's complex. Mm -hmm. And I think at the heart of great communication is the ability to understand your audience and foster a real connection with other people. That takes, that takes work. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Alexia? That's right. Yeah, you have to understand who your audience is and what their expectation are. And, uh, and you have also to take into account your own objectives uh, mm -hmm. for that communication and what's specific about your research project. And by combining all that information, you have to find what message you want to convey. Mm -hmm. The message is what your audience should remember after your communication is over, and it should be short and precise. So what I recommend is, well, start by building your message. Mm -hmm. Great, and I'm glad you mentioned audience because we are definitely going to come back to that and talk about a little bit about how we might change our message depending on the audience. Mm -hmm. So Matt, your thoughts? Yeah, I think you're going to see a theme here amongst the panelists. Mm -hmm. But So my three core tips to communicate your science would be to consider your audience, consider your message, and consider your delivery. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are key and critically important because it varies widely, you know, not just uh, what you say, but how you say it is very important from audience to audience. Like if I were talking to fellow scientists versus a science journalist versus uh, my grandmother. Hi, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> I would explain my work in very different ways using different language and perhaps even with a different message. Mm -hmm. So to consider those three things, the audience, the message, and the delivery are critically important. And beyond that, I'd say practice is so important. And it's one of the things that we as scientists are never really formally taught unless we seek out that training ourselves. Right. But it is so important to practice your messaging, practice how you're going to communi communicate to diverse audiences from varied backgrounds. And once you practice, you'll find this getting easier and easier with time. Mm -hmm. Great. And you mentioned journalists, and we have Laura yes, with us as well. Yes, yeah. And, and part of the way you can practice is uh, by reading a lot. You know, notice what uh, what sort of articles are interesting to you. What sort of quotes amplify a story or or make something clearer to you when you're reading about somebody else's work. And uh, you know, when you're when you're talking to journalists, especially, you know, be quick to respond. Um, be generous with your time if you can. I know it's a lot to ask to be interviewed about a story, whether it's about your own work or somebody else's work. Um, but it's really a, a public service to your field, to your own research, and to to the audience, to uh, you know, to general people out there who uh, are interested in science but maybe don't know much about it and might be intimidated by it. And mm -hmm. to to kind of reach them where they are by by thinking about your message and practicing mm -hmm. and, and thinking about who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. Great. So um, a question actually just came in from someone at NASA. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so I'm, I guess they're a scientist, I'm going I'm to assume. Um, but they ask an interesting question, which actually ties in with, with my next question, and, and that's about storytelling. Um, and Matt, I'm going to come to you as, as our resident scientist. So you're going to be speaking for all scientists today. Perfect. Um, so the, let, me, let me read the question. So this, this uh, view is, is asking how the speakers feel about science communicators, professional science communicators like uh, Bill the Science Guy and Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, who might not have done science for quite a while, maybe a, a number of years. Um, and is this something that scientists should strive for, to sort of become a professional communicator in this way? And so this, this comes to my question, which is storytelling is a very effective way to get across a message. Um, and this is what I think people like Neil deGrasse Tyson do extremely well, and, and Carl Sagan before him. Um, but how do we talk about the science without diminishing the data and without losing um, some of the content. So Matt, I know we talked about this previously about the difference between simplifying and being simple. So maybe you could talk to that. Exactly. I think there's a key difference between being simple in what you're saying, clear and direct, mm -hmm. and being overly simplistic with your message. And this is where it comes back to that key concept of what is the core message of mm -hmm. your work? What is that one, if you, if you have an audience, what is that one thing that you want them to get out of whatever it is you're communicating to them? And if you stick to that core message, then you can deliver it clearly and effectively using simple terms. And I think you can do so effectively. If you try to cram in too much information, as a scientist, that might seem natural to you. But to most people, that's very unnatural. So you don't want to cram in too much information, because the risk there is that your audience loses everything. 
So while you, while you may lose some precision if you're not able to actually communicate every little detail about what you've done, you might actually gain the fact that your audience will take away the key thing that you want to communicate mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. And to go back to your general question about, um, or your, the, the audience question of, you know, is there value or, or what should scientists strive for to become, you know, a Bill Nye the Science Guy or Carl Sagan uh, versus, you know, staying in the lab and doing that real science. I think you can have a foot in both worlds. And I think more and more scientists should strive to do that, especially scientists who like doing that. And I think, you know, if people really enjoy communicating their work, it shows. At least that's been what I've seen. Uh, and uh, maybe you can speak to that mm -hmm. as, as well. Um, but uh, we need more scientists out there on the front lines communicating for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the problem of, of knowing so much and wanting whoever you're talking to to know absolutely everything you know. <laughs> like this is universal, it's not just scientists. Uh, my reporters often will have all kinds of you know, interesting information in a story, but it distracts from the, the narrative or it's, uh, it's just a little bit too complicated and you know, too difficult to explain sort of the background so you can really grasp it. So a lot of what I do as an editor is just help people refine mm -hmm. and just pick a message and you know, know that you, you, know, you can't help people know everything you know, but you can tell them the most important things and, mm -hmm. and welcome them to learn more. Mm -hmm. I think it's when you imagine what other people might be thinking or feeling and you put yourself in their shoes, we use improvisational theater mm -hmm. to help scientists do that. It's very fun, we don't really put you on stage. It's more mm -hmm. about connecting. But you realize that the way that you think about things is not how everybody else thinks about them. Um, it's, there's this idea of the curse of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Like knowledge is a curse. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. thing. We're in the business of producing and sharing knowledge. When you're cursed by knowledge, it's when you forget that other people don't see the world as you do. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it only in the terms that you do, you're only going to communicate about it in one way. Mm -hmm. So, Alexia, what about the scientists that you work with? Um, you know, how do you help them in, in getting this communication right? Um, well, uh, we train scientists, and in fact, uh, we have a method that they can use in order to build an effective presentation. And mm -hmm. what I said, just said, is that they have to start with the message. That's mm -hmm. very important, and then they have to build all their argument around that message. Everything that they're going to say should be aligned with that message, and. I'm telling them there, yeah, well, you shouldn't say everything because your audience will get lost. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to be selective. I mean, no, n nobody can uh, remember everything that you're going to, uh, you, you've been working on. So you have to be selective and talk about what's important. I think one other thing that, that reminds me of is, and it's about considering your audience. If you're talking to a journalist, you have to understand that they need to know your key finding right away. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing they need to know. Uh, whereas as scientists, we're trained to build evidence and, and really mm -hmm. go into elaborate explanations mm -hmm. to try and say, okay, this is how we're getting to our point. And then eventually you get to your point. Get to the point! Right, exactly. <laughs> what is but, your point? Yeah, but, but if you're communicating with, uh, with a journalist or with you know, non-scientific audiences, you need to have the, your, your message and your finding be the tip of the spear that you lead off with. And then you can say, we got to this point, this is how we got there. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite way right. in which science is done often. And it must be frustrating for journalists if a science is, scientist is speaking, talking for an hour about all the details and what you really want is what's the crux. <laughs> yes. And I don't want to say anything bad about the people who keep <laughs> us on the phone for an hour. Bless their hearts. Uh, we really do appreciate all the background. Um, but yeah, the, the more you can distill, because the information will get distilled. You know, when we publish a story in the Post, we have maybe a thousand words on a typical story. And we're not going to have all the words that you say go into it. So it's better. Uh, to, to do the distilling yourself rather than let somebody else do it for you. Mm -hmm. So related to this, I, I want to um, come to sort of the flip side, um, and that is how do you express confidence in your results as a mm -hmm. scientist while still communicating that nothing can be absolute? Um, and there was actually a story, I believe it was on a Washington Post podcast, about the measles epidemic oh, yeah. where anti-vaxxers are going into these communities and are talking in an absolute way, but the scientists mm -hmm can't do the same. They can't say a vaccine will never cause any harm because mm -hmm. there is always that slim chance. So how do you handle that? L Laura, maybe you can talk to that. How do you handle that? Um, first of all, you have to be really comfortable with what you're willing to say. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, I think you have to think about how it's going to be heard. This piece about knowing your audience and what they're starting with. I would never encourage a scientist who we work with 
to exaggerate or mm -hmm. distort. I mm -hmm. would never do that. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to speak from a place of authenticity mm -hmm. and accuracy. You also have to imagine what the competing voices are out there, and they're strong. Um, I, I also think we tend to think of science communication often in this most extreme form. There's a lot of other audiences in mm -hmm. between who are really excited to hear and listen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts, Matt, on, on this issue of... Communicating uncertainty? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think there's, at least from the way I see it, there's two primary ways to do this. One is to redirect, which is to say, well, yes, that we don't know, but here's what we do know. That's mm -hmm. one way. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I kind of like embracing uncertainty, um, and it's okay to say we don't know something. Um, it's just complicated because you want to communicate that we don't know for sure, but you also want to communicate here's that we can still make decisions based on evidence. Mm -hmm. Even if that evidence is not 100% foolproof, mm -hmm. we can still make sound, reasonable, logical decisions based on evidence. And from a scientific perspective, uncertainty is the exciting part, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, right. yeah, I mean, that's, that's when you see, when you read a paper, right, as a scientist, that's not your own, or sometimes that is your own, you see the error bars around the results. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you want to know, why is that error so big? And, and can I do anything, or is there any sort of ideas that I have that reduce that uncertainty? Mm -hmm. So for scientists, uncertainty is where the excitement lies, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but, and you shouldn't shy away from communicating that, but also saying that, look, we can make a decision about what we need to do about climate change, about that we need to get vaccinated for this or that, based on the evidence that we have, even though it's not 100% certain what the outcome will be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we try to make it clear that um, uncertainty is a feature, not a bug in, in science. <laughs> right. It's part of the process. Uh, yeah, that is ex yeah, that's exciting. What are the questions? What isn't yet known? But what do we know? And that can be very uh, disarming if you just you know acknowledge in a story that you know scientists aren't sure about this yet. However, this is what we do know. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, th it's a very respectful thing for the audience to not try to hide the uncertainty, but to explain the sources of it and how we know what we know. Um, and because we are, you know, we, um, people who care about evidence and reality are in a battle uh, in this age of a crisis of misinformation and mm -hmm. we're competing against, against anti-vaxxers and against people who will make up their own, you know, false narratives about the world. And so it's, it's our mission to, to make reality as compelling and as viral as nonsense. Mm -hmm. So that, that actually leads me nicely into the next question from our audience um, and that is the, the, what is the best way to communicate a message about a controversial issue such as climate change, which Matt was just mentioning, um, when your audience might have some preconceived ideas or, or previous assumptions uh, about this. So, yeah. Alexa, yeah, well, would you like yeah, to jump sure. on that I one? mean, uh, if you think that your audience, for example, uh, doesn't trust vaccines, then you shouldn't start your communication by, by saying vaccines are great, of course, mm -hmm. <laughs> because you're going to disconnect with them. Mm -hmm. So you should really take into account uh, the fact that some of the people in the audience don't really trust vaccines. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, uh, you should never dismiss their opinion. And you should take it into account. I mean, it's very positive because people are interested in science and, and uh, it's a good opportunity to open a dialogue with them. And the questions they're going to ask and the remarks that they're going to make can really help you as a scientist to think about your own research projects. And it's going to be uh, something positive in the end. I think the context in which you're communicating matters so much. Mm -hmm. So if it's an interpersonal communication, it's really different than if yeah. you're on TV and someone's pulling a sound bite. But the more, if, if it is interpersonal or even in front of a larger audience, the more you can listen. Mm -hmm. um, mm. So much of this is about trust. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if people are willing to trust you, they're willing to listen. And if you're willing to engage their questions and find out more about where they are, you're going to be able to reach them differently than if you're just spewing facts at them. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly humility versus yeah. arrogance plays mm -hmm. a huge role. I mean, who do you want to listen to? Someone who respects you and yeah. treats you thoughtfully or someone who talks down to you? So, so maybe curiosity on the part of the scientist yeah. of, about their audience could be something good to keep in mind? Mm. It's, I, I think that's where it's at, really mm -hmm. acknowledging there's humanity in you that's important that I want to learn about because I'd like to share this rather than I want to shove these facts down your throat because you're not smart and you don't know what you're talking about. That's, that's a guaranteed conversation <laughs> right. stopper. Right. 
So let's talk a little bit more about audiences. And, and Alexia, I'm, I'm going to come to you on this one because I know you, you work with scientists to, to speak to different audiences. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I just jotted down for myself a, a number of different audiences. So you've, you've obviously got your peers, but you've also got um, uh, the general public. You've got industry, maybe angel investors. Mm -hmm. You've got the FDA, maybe, that you're talking to. Um, so there's a lot of different audiences. So how, how do you, Alexia, how do you work with scientists to shift their message depending on the audience? Well, uh, I tell them that to take into account their expectations, that's what I said. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, funders, of course, they're going to be interested in their return on investment. So it's mm -hmm. about money and how much they can get and, and when. And so you have to be clear about what you know about that. I mean, of course, don't oversell your science, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, um, your peers, well, they'll be interested in your findings, uh, in your results, uh, in the process that you're following, and, uh, and maybe they want to col collaborate with you. And uh, um, taking into account these different audiences, you should change your message depending on who you're talking to. And, uh, well, um, I don't know, well, on social media, for example, uh, mm -hmm. you are talking to your community and uh, uh, obviously uh, they want to know uh, the latest news about your topic. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great opportunity to share that with them. Mm -hmm. um, also, Matt, maybe I can ask you, you have a blog, so you're on, and you're on social yeah. media. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, if you'd like to tell everyone how to find it, that would be great. But <laughs> you maybe can search yes. on it, you can find okay. it. Yeah. So, so maybe you can, you can uh, talk about how, how you position your message differently in your blog to how you might in a paper that you're writing or a colleague that you're speaking to. Yeah, so for my blog, for example, I go in there with the thought of I want to be speaking to a, a audience with a high school to college education that has some background in science but by no means are specialists. And I think if you have to know who your audience is to know how you're going to communicate whatever story it is you're selling. But in interpersonal communications where you have that immediate back and forth, whether it be with you know, a friend or a relative or a journalist, I sort of let them lead by listening. And what I, what I mean by that is you can kind of tell when you're talking to someone if they're engaged, if they're interested, if they're getting it. And of course, to stop and say, you know, did, was, that, was that clear what I said? Or by all means, please let me know because I'll absolutely explain it a different way. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, uh, hopefully that's helpful. But in any case, I think it's really important to see, because when you're talking to different audiences, you have to sort of gauge what level of jargon you're going to use from a lot to none, mm -hmm. and what the appropriate level is. And you can sort of lead by listening. Are they getting it? Are they engaged? Are they asking you know, the mm -hmm. right quote unquote questions of you? And in that way, uh, you can have more effective uh, conversations with people. Mm -hmm. Or do they have that glazed Exactly. Look? That's what I'm saying. You want to avoid right. that. That's right. never exactly. a good yeah. no. and, and I think as this, this panel mentions, people generally are really interested in science. You know, So if someone's engaging you about the science that you're doing, that means that they want to know. And if they have that glazed over look, they're not students in a classroom. They're someone who actually voluntarily <laughs> engaged you in this topic. So you know, figuring out how to communicate to them is key. Yeah. There's such fantastic research out there mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. audiences. You have to do your homework. You have to know mm -hmm. who is this person and why would they care. Mm -hmm. I mean, knowing a journalist needs to lead with a headline and there's mm -hmm. a story. What's at stake for them? And really, we have people write that out. There's some wonderful tools out there. I'll give a shout out to Compass. Um, Nancy Barron's book, Escape the Ivory Tower, I love their message box. It really helps you lay out your argument with clarity. So you've imagined who that audience is. You've done your homework. There's social science research about climate change and people's perceptions or vaccination, um, about Americans' perceptions. There's segments of audiences. Look into this and inform yourselves about who you think you might be speaking to. And then when you get in the room and you do it, it may be different, but at least you've got a strong starting place go from. Mm -hmm. Great. So um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit um, and I want to come to Laura for a, a comment on this and that is what is the role of scientists in educating the general public about how to read, interpret and understand science? And I'm, I think you probably talked to a lot of scientists yeah. at very who have different levels of ability or skill in doing this. So what are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I think so. And um, you know, it's important to share what you're doing with the public for a lot of reasons. I mean, especially if your research is taxpayer funded, if it has implications for policy, uh, for planning, uh, it's, you know, it's sort of a moral imperative to, to share what you know. 
Um, it can be a lot of work. It can be intimidating. Uh, and you know, there are many ways to do it. Uh, certainly talking to journalists is a good one. Um, and there, you know, if you've never done it before, you, it may seem like this mysterious process, and how do you even start that process? And there are some things you can do. Um, if you're at a, a university, you probably have a public information office. Uh, so talk to them and you know, especially let them know if you have a uh, you know, big paper coming out or if you just want some media training, that's what they're there for. Um, and then you can also kind of raise your hand to volunteer to talk to scientists through a program called SciLine, S-C-I-L-I-N-E, that's run by AAAS. And then there's another group called uh, 500 Women Scientists. It's called Ask a Woman Scientist. And this is to kind of get around the problem that's of great. so many, too many articles quoting exclusively, you know, tenured white guys from Harvard. <laughs> and we're trying to get away from that. Uh, we're trying to, you know, in, improve the diversity of, of who, you know, whose voices we're hearing in the media. Uh, so there are definitely ways you can participate in that. And uh, I hope you will. And any other comments, thoughts on that? Um, so, so the, I guess the follow-up question then is um, about the the role of scientists. Is how do we counteract a culture of mistrust about science? Mm. And we 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 touched on this briefly. Mm. Um, I think it's sometimes difficult to talk to people if they know you're a scientist because they think you know they have a preconceived idea, as we talked about already. So, um, do you have any thoughts about? Um, Speaking to to uh, those who don't necessarily see the scientific process as something that is trustworthy, I think this is I think this is why it's so important for scientists to speak up and speak out about their science and about the scientific process. One of the things that sort of drives me nuts is people or this idea that you can believe or not believe in science, like yeah. it's some sort of deity. It's science is just a way of thinking. It's a way of following evidence testing theories and, and using accumulated evidence to come to evidence-based decisions about how to manage resources or how to deal with a healthcare issue. And to get that message out to the public, I think scientists need to be the ones communicating their work. And this black box that I, I, I feel is too often how public views science actually taking place it's not as scary when someone sort of leads you at the level that you need to be leaded into that scientific process. And if you do that, then I think you'll get a much more engaged public uh, in, in regards to your science. And one way that I try to do that in, in my own work, incorporate this sort of public understanding of science is whenever I write a paper from, you know, from the time that I was in graduate school, if it's a paper that I'm leading, I try to write a popular science article of my own so that in that way, through an organization like The Conversation is a great way to do that. And in that way, I can't be misquoted or I can get my message that I want to get across. I can make sure that that gets across. So I think in that way, in addition to hopefully having journalists independently come to you and say, I want to interview you about this work, why don't you interview yourself and write a story yourself about that work? I view that as part of the scientific process of publishing a paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and uh a lot of magazines are interested in, in having scientists write first-person articles about, th about mm -hmm. their own work. So The Conversation is a great one. Uh, Scientific American. <coughs> I used to work at Slate Magazine, and I published a lot of scientists there. Uh, so there are outlets that are interested in having people write about their own work. I think it's important not to assume that audiences are hostile towards science. There's, yeah. there's actually, if you look at the research on trust, and there's, it's pretty consistent, scientists are a very trusted group in society. Mm -hmm. Now, the institutions where we work, <laughs> depending on who your audience is, that might vary whether it's industry or universities, but really as a group, scientists are trusted. Um, I encourage people to take a look at an organization called Science Counts, it's one word. And they've done some really interesting work. Chris Volpe, uh, my colleague, mm -hmm. has done some really interesting work on how Americans perceive science. And if science had us a brand in the US, how science makes people feel, what it makes them think, what it evokes, it's surprising that brand is, is hope. Nice. <laughs> I mean, that's you say science, people feel hope. Hmm. Um, so great. throwing everybody in one bucket and assuming right. you're always talking to a climate denier or someone mm -hmm. who doesn't believe in vaccination, you, we, may, we may be overshooting with audiences who want to become more engaged mm -hmm. and learn more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you talked about yeah. storytelling at the yes. beginning of the webinar. Yes, uh, in fact, it's good to uh, tell stories to your audience because, I mean, um, stories convey emotions and people remember well mm -hmm. the stories. And it's not only for kids, obviously, because adults mm -hmm. love to uh, read books or watch videos. So mm -hmm. stories are great for scientists. 
Um, but then scientists should uh, tell stories about their science, but uh, based on real facts. And mm -hmm. or because, um, for example, last year uh, there was um, a communication campaign that was launched by WWF, I guess you've heard about mm -hmm. it, and uh, it was based on a fake video of a penguin um, walking on an island entirely made of plastic waste, and mm. this doesn't exist. And it was a buzz, but it's fake, mm -hmm. and scientists shouldn't go that far mm -hmm. uh, using emotions. I mean, they should stick right. to reality. Yes. Right. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my sense is having been a scientist is that scientists are a little bit afraid of emotional storytelling. Maybe because of that, they worry that they might, if, even if they don't go too far, they might be accused of going too far. Mm -hmm. Well, no, it's good to convey emotions. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean uh, that's, that's a way to link to your audience. But then, well, it's a question of, well, not going too far. Mm -hmm. And it also humanizes scientists to show that you're passionate about something or mm -hmm. scared about something or curious. Mm -hmm. um, at The Post, some of our most popular stories are in a, a series called Medical Mysteries. <laughs> it's completely formulaic, but it's a formula that works. I mean, mm -hmm. mysteries are some of the best-selling books. You know, there's a kid with some kind of illness and doctors can't diagnose it and all these, you know, there's all these steps and all these clues and then there's an answer at the end. It's very satisfying. So mm -hmm. storytelling formulas are just, you know, they, they've stuck around for thousands of years because people like them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we make this assumption that human beings are thinking beings who also feel. We are feeling <laughs> beings who also yeah. think. Oh, that's nice. And I, mm. I just like to throw out the idea that we communicate science across our culture. It's in yeah. movies, television, um, the food we consume. So there are stories about science happening everywhere. If we're not telling stories, mm -hmm. <laughs> who is then telling stories about mm -hmm. science? I feel, do, mm -hmm. I feel we have a moral imperative, whether we do that directly or to work with people like you, the other Laura at the table, <laughs> who professionally tells these stories, yeah. or our um, uh, public affairs officers, or government affairs, to yeah. get those stories out. That's We've right. got to have our voice mm -hmm. in this, if you want to call it marketplace. Yeah, yeah. there's a big signal-to-noise problem, yes. and scientists generally are the signal, and there's a lot of noise mm -hmm. that, that it, you know, is in competition for that signal, and so it's important for everybody to amplify what's real, whether it's their own work or whether they see you know, reality uh, depicted in other people's papers, in, you know, in the newspaper, and uh, social media, you know, wherever, it, you know, wherever you can endorse reality and endorse interesting facts and good stories about the real world, mm -hmm. um, that you know, helps compete for people's attention against things that are you know, malicious or just wrong or, or awful. And I think it's undeniable that when you're, when you're writing for a popular audience, uh, that you want to convey some sort of emotion uh, about your work to show that, you know, humanize you or whatever the case may be. But I also want to advocate for uh, conveying emotion even as scientists speaking to other scientists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I can think myself of some of the best presentations I've seen at scientific meetings. Mm -hmm. It invariably has nothing to do with the topic often. It has to do with the speaker. Like, mm -hmm. is the speaker engaged? Is the speaker, <laughs> like, Sometimes literally saying, that was so cool when this happened, or we couldn't, like my jaw mm -hmm. was on the floor, you know, whatever right. the case may be. Yeah. And those are the talks that I remember. I, I can remember particular talks that I won't go into now that like, when I read us, they were literally talks sandwiched between two talks that I wanted to go to, and that talk in the middle that I just was sitting through ended up being the best talk hmm. because of the emotion conveyed by the researcher. So even when scientists are talking to other scientists, there's an appropriate way to communicate emotion in your work. Great. Um, so let me come to the other side of, of what we were talking about earlier that, that Laura was, was speaking about, and that's um, what do journalists want to hear from scientists? Because mm. I think that's very important for, I, I think a lot of scientists are perhaps afraid of journalists yeah. or not quite sure how to approach <laughs> yes. them. So as, as everyone can see, Laura is not scary. <laughs> She's very approachable. At least that Laura. Yeah, at least that Laura. <laughs> Um, so, so how can scientists best prepare when they when they're going to speak to a journalist? Yeah, yeah, I'd say um, scientists. I think sometimes think of journalists as snakes, you know, sort of dangerous and <laughs> and uh, you know difficult to predict. But you know, as in real snakes, they're more scared of you than you are of them. So they're yeah, they're not. They're not you said hurt that you. before to someone. Yeah. Yeah. Not sure the metaphor plays out in all its you know, in all its extensions, but. Um, 
but yeah, so a few things to know is just that journalists are on a completely different time scale. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't think in semesters, we don't think in grants, resubmissions, we think in terms of, am I gonna meet, you know, I work at the Washington Post, I wanna be at the New York Times. Um, mm -hmm. To do that, I need you to respond you know, to a phone call from one of my reporters immediately. Um, so, you know, respond quickly. If you want to propose a story, you know, don't do it a week after something's in the news. You know, if something is in your field, if people are talking about it. For instance, if you have information about, you know, say UFOs, which have been going viral for the past uh, couple weeks or months, it's, it's mm -hmm. maddening. Um, but say you study, you know, the, the reasons why people believe in UFOs, even though they don't actually, you know, exist in the way people think about it, like that would be a good time to contact. Uh, you know, a magazine or newspaper to, to write your own story, to write something on Medium, to do a Twitter storm about it, to contact journalists mm -hmm. uh, to suggest stories. Mm -hmm. um, and then and one other minor thing, uh, a lot of times a reporter will contact someone for an outside comment about somebody else's work. And, uh, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, I'm not the right person to comment on that, I don't know enough. Um, but probably you do. And the reporter doesn't need you to be the world's expert. They just need you to know more than they do and help you, you know, help, help the reporter understand where this work fits into the ecosystem of this field, you know, what its, what's, what its implications are, did they do the stats correctly. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's kind of a thankless task helping reporters understand somebody else's work, but that's a, that's a, a real service you can do to help every, you know, to help, you know, again, the signal to noise ratio. Mm -hmm. And when you're going to meet a journalist, uh, well, uh, try to make a list of the questions that the mm -hmm. journalist may ask you and, of course, prepare your answers. And they should be short and precise yeah. and straight to the point. Mm -hmm. Would you recommend preparing questions that you would like the journalist to ask you? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, this is sort of a standard um, reportorial trick at the end of a conversation or at the end yeah. of an interview. They'll say, is there anything I should have, you know, I should have yeah. asked you that I didn't? And that's sort of the opportunity for the, for the person being interviewed to say, well. Let me tell you about this exciting thing. But that's, that's another way to do it is, well, the journalist is asking you a question and you can answer another question too. Yes. It's also it's possible. Yeah. Classic pivot. Yes, the pivot. <laughs> that's an interesting question, but let me tell you about this. Yes, that's right. certain people in our administration who are excited about that. Um, but, um, so there's been a few people who've, who've been asking for um, sort of more concrete examples, and Matt, I'm going to come to you for this, uh, more concrete examples of how to take something that's complex and scientific and make it um, understandable to a non-scientific <coughs> audience. And I know that you've done this in your blog and you've done it in your presentation, so can you give sort of an example of maybe one of the, the papers that you've written or something, a story mm. that you've talked about and how you've converted that into something more, more simple? I know it's, it's a big question. On yeah, the spot. that is a big question. I, again, I would go back to the point that I made earlier about just practicing, practicing to people that do not, are not intimately familiar with, with your work. Um, so one way I can think of that, that we did this for a paper we published a number of years ago now um, was that uh, birds are brought in by the smell of algae to eat krill, and it's, it's complex, it's ecologic, you know, it's all this stuff, but the way we did this was, what's interesting about this relationship is that when the krill, these little marine shrimp-like animals, eat algae, the algae produce a chemical compound that brings in the birds to, uh, to forage on the krill. And as a result, sort of the birds are protecting the algae in a way by eating mm -hmm. their predators. And I forget exactly who came up with this at first. I think it actually was the uh, press officer at UC Davis who thought of it as a dinner bell, so that this, this nice. yeah, and so mm -hmm. I That's think, great. I think what's great is, is you need to come up with an analogy. Yeah. If you can come up with an analogy in almost all of your research, there can be an analogy that you can do. So the dinner bell analogy worked really well, and as soon as she said it, I remember thinking to myself, "That's it. That's the one." Mm -hmm. And um, other people had since called it a chemical scream. Um, I think that's, I think that's what that's I think that's too. what NPR called it, um, which that's is a little M Night Shyamalan. Is, yeah, right, right, right. Which but, you know, it got the general point across, right? So yeah. I think to talk to people who are not intimately familiar with your work, that can be other scientists, that could be a really creative friend or family member um, who is totally not in science whatsoever, but maybe is just a creative thinker. Um, to come up with a really good analogy. And if you can come up with a good analogy, then you can hook people, and that's what's worked for me in the past. You should also think about how what you're working on is, a, is going to affect the lives or society uh, today, tomorrow, in 10 years, and you should talk about that because mm -hmm. uh, your audience will feel concerned about your topic if they know how much this will affect them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And to see the, the sim simplification, the you know, clarification uh, done really well, there are some excellent children's science magazines that will oh, take you know, really complicated, mm. challenging concepts. Um, like Muse Magazine had a lovely uh, story that just sort of in a paragraph sketched out the reproducibility problem and why hmm. you know some things get published and scientists don't always know and so they do more experiments and um, and there's also science news for students does a really nice job of this of taking a science story that's been written about for adults um, and and kind of expressing it at, at a high school level um, so people do a really good job of this and, and sometimes when you when you want to do this for yourself just seeing how other people have done it is a, is a really good way to, to understand how it can be done one of the reasons we use improvisational theater is it, it puts you on your toes yeah. and it makes you think fast mm. and you celebrate making a mistake and you move on and just get back to it. And what I, what I think a lot of people don't fully consciously realize as they're going through these intense and really fun workshops is that we're teaching you to give and receive feedback yeah. mm -hmm. and that it's, it's really a blessing when someone's willing to say, oh, how about doing it this way? So this point about practicing and mm -hmm. doing it and trying it out, not being embarrassed and saying, oh, that didn't yeah. work, I'm gonna ditch that and go on to the next idea mm -hmm. and, and put that behind you. People come up with amazing visuals, analogies, mm -hmm. metaphors that they wouldn't have thought of that really, and of course you want it to be accurate. A metaphor or a, mm -hmm. an analogy is great if it's, if it's accurate mm -hmm. and it paints a picture and it invites the person into the conversation so they could ask more mm -hmm. questions about the details. That, that brings me to this barrier. I think scientists often have a barrier because they're oftentimes scientists are perfectionists and mm -hmm. as a result it can it can hinder their ability to communicate their work. Mm -hmm. What I mean by this is we're all talking about practice, how you need to practice, mm -hmm. how everyone needs an editor and all this sort of thing, right? But oftentimes scientists don't have that initial confidence, oh my work's not ready, I can't share it with you, I can't show you that presentation mm -hmm. yet, oh I can't let you read that draft yet, I can't really explain this graph yet. You know, yes you can. You can and you can receive feedback almost at any stage of your work, of any project that you're doing, and the feedback you receive will help you immensely. And that's what I found um, and I think that's across the board true mm -hmm. for scientists. So if you have a project that's in some stage of completion, talk to someone about it. And yeah. the feedback you receive from a scientist or a non-scientist will almost certainly be helpful. So uh, just a question to come back, Laura, to what you were saying is how can a scientist put themselves in that improv mindset, <laughs> you know, when, they, when they're not in a class with other people? Do you have any suggestions, you know, may, maybe talking, Matt mentioned family members that might be good, people that you're comfortable with already, but do you have any thoughts on Yeah, that? first of all, I really believe in training, um, mm -hmm. and I think in evidence-based training uh, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. we scaffolded experiences that help. We, in our work, we particularly gear our work towards scientists, and we understand the culture of science. I'm a social scientist. Um, I think improv, when you hear the term people think about stand-up comedy, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking mm -hmm. about being connected, noticing what's going on in the other person, being inquisitive and curious about them, and then using your imagination to make sure that what you're doing is landing. So take some training. Take some training, practice. An improv mindset is a mindset of human connection. It's not an, a mindset of performance. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a mindset of being present in the moment. I meditate mm -hmm. because it helps me stay present. Mm -hmm. I don't get 10 steps ahead or 20 steps behind myself and I stay nice. right, right where I'm at. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, so I, I, what you're saying, kind of what I hear is, I think it's important for, for scientists when they're communicating to try put themselves in the audience's shoes mm -hmm. and see what they might be hearing. That's, that's um, exactly right. It's, it's empathy. What is that other person <coughs> thinking, feeling, imagining? What's going through their head? And then what's your responsibility in that moment mm -hmm. if you're leading the conversation What's your responsibility as the leader to ensure that that, that audience stays with you and mm -hmm. that they care, that mm -hmm. they want to hear, and mm -hmm. that they remember? Yeah. Leading by listening. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and Laura, I'm sure you deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis because you're, I'm sure, often putting yourself in the, 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 the shoes of the Washington Post audience and imagining how they might read a story. So exactly. how do you work with your writers and through them with the scientists when mm -hmm. you're trying to do that? Yeah, my main role as an editor is to get confused really easily. <laughs> to just read every sentence as if you could you know, misinterpret where that phrase goes and what does that word mean. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of what I do is just ask people to clarify, to simplify, um, and to 
you know, again, think of your audience, say it in a way that will make sense to somebody who comes to the Washington Post because they really like our Game of Thrones coverage <laughs> or our campaign coverage, um, and there's probably a lot of crossover there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, always, always, you know, assume that the person you're trying to reach, um, you know, has a million things that's competing for their attention and, mm -hmm. and for their concentration, and just make it really easy for them. And especially, especially in science writing, if you're if you're writing about something that's really complicated, use simple words, use simple mm -hmm. sentences. You know, it takes a certain amount of cognitive load if you're using you know big words and complicated phraseology. Just you know, make make the language simple so that they can concentrate on the concepts and really enjoy having their mind expanded by mm -hmm. some new idea. Mm -hmm. And that actually comes back to a number of comments that we've had about the use of jargon and how to oh, yes. prevent that. Yeah. Um, and so, do you, how do we flag that in ourselves? You know, when yeah. when you're writing, um, you know, I'm sure a scientist is just writing something naturally; they understand the jargon, so that it might be very difficult for them. Do you have any ways that you speak to your reporters about that? Yeah, it's hard, and it's really hard to to remember the words that you used to not know. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sure everybody, you know, first year of grad school, or you know, it's some class you took. Uh, for me, it was when I started grad school. I just remember thinking, I, I don't understand this language. There's all these words and all these mm -hmm. concepts that people know, and I don't know, and I'm an idiot. What am I doing here? Mm -hmm. um, so try to capture that, uh, that you know, that memory of being confused and. Um, you know, some, some people are very systematic about it and just keep a list. Um, and they're, they're actually, uh, Carl Zimmer, I think, has a, has a long list of, of words you shouldn't use when you're writing about <laughs> science. And some of them are just cliches and they're just weak. Right. You know, mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell, <laughs> um, that kind of thing. But, but they're also just jargony words that, you know, like right. stakeholders. Um, Sorry, you might have used that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I'm sure I have. Oh, sure synergy is my favorite. Synergy, yeah. I like protein folding. Protein yeah. folding, like yeah. Yes. Oh, and there's a really good one. Um, oh, shoot, I'll think of her name as soon as we're done. But uh, a, a really good list of words that mean one thing to climate scientists and something else to the rest of the world. So positive feedback. Like you might think, oh, that's, you know, that's no. a compliment. Nice dress. Right. That's positive feedback. No, it means there's a loop where, you know, melting ice is going to make the reflectance less, the albedo, and then more stuff's going to melt, and it's awful. She's, she's so, so Alexia, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you handle jargon with, with your scientists, and where, where, where do you need to cut them off and say, you've got to lose that word? Well, uh, I'm trying to... Uh, uh, to act as if I knew nothing about what, what yeah. they're talking about, and mm -hmm. that's that's the point. I mean, um, your audience uh, uh, doesn't really have well, um, doesn't have the concept. So first of all, uh, talk about how useful is your research, and then because that's what they want to know, uh, and then try to figure out how you would talk to your son or your nephew or whatever, whoever in your family or uh, who's young or um, who, is, uh, who doesn't know about your topic. And that's a good way to, to start uh, talking about your science in a very different way. Mm -hmm. I hate this concept of dumbing it down. Yeah. Mm. For anybody who's bi or multilingual, it's like speaking another language. Yeah. So it's not like, I'm going to make this simple for the people who aren't as smart as I am. That's the wrong way to think about it. It's, there's a certain joy and playfulness in thinking, well, how can I say this differently and really challenging mm -hmm. yourself mm -hmm. to do that? It's a mm -hmm. different mindset about it. And I think that that provokes you to have really inventive and mm -hmm. fun yeah. language. Um, the thing is, mm -hmm. Your audience, they want to feel clever, you know, they it want is. to feel stupid, right. you know, right. and you have point, to take yeah. that into account. I mean, uh, it's so nice to learn new things. So if you avoid the jargon and allow them to no learn new things, they will be very happy about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I really want to, in the last 10 minutes that we have, I really want to talk a little bit about, more about training. Um, and I know Laura will have something to say about that, I'm sure, on the, the, the older <laughs> method and Alexa <laughs> as well. Um, but um, I did want to come to uh, just talking a little a, a bit about different channels of communication. So we've talked about the different audience, but we haven't really touched on all the channels. So apart from the obvious um, publishing in a journal, um, maybe uh, through the press and media, um, there's also social media. There's YouTube now. Also, oh, yeah. you know. All mm -hmm. sorts of other channels, Instagram, a lot of things that at my age I don't even know about. <laughs> that, you know, the, the kids are all doing them. Um, so, so I'd like to to think about how 
scientists can use these channels in different ways and maybe unique ways that they hadn't thought of. Um, so I'm going to start with, with Alexia. I know uh, social media well, is something maybe you could talk about as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, social media, well, scientists may think that social media are a good way to com communicate to the general public. But in fact, to me, it's even better uh, in order to communicate with your fellow researchers, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. to your community yeah, yeah. and to build a relationship with your community, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. to talk about what's new uh, and to get also information from them on a daily basis and it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So I do recommend to use social media. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, it's also interesting now that as you've mentioned, um, there are, let's say, classical ways to communicate about science like uh, uh, conference talks or posters mm -hmm. or articles and scientific articles and other uh, tools that are um, used more widely now and it's great also well, to combine them all and to find something mm -hmm. that is even more interesting. For example, now we have this webinar and there are some people on Twitter that are uh, reacting mm -hmm. and uh, asking questions. And uh, <laughs> of course, it's a great opportunity for, for you to broaden your audience and that's the same way for scientists. So they should mm -hmm. think about these different media and how to combine them for something which is more, even more effective. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun too. Like science Twitter is a blast. <laughs> people, science Twitter, the people are funny. Like there are some really, yeah. really engaged yeah. scientists on Twitter, funny and outraged. Um, both of those are right. emotions yeah. you can work with for communication, for spreading a message. Uh, and, and journalists live on Twitter. So if you ever need to find a journalist, um, that's where we are all day. Um, mm -hmm. So follow journalists. You know, if, if there's somebody you trust, that's a, you know, looking at their Twitter uh, feed is a good way to sort of understand who they are, what they care about, what they cover. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I use it all the time. I, I'm on Twitter in the morning, you know, during my commute, and kind of looking for you know what people are interested in, who's saying what. You know, here's an idea we should look into. Here's somebody who has interesting things to say. We should quote them in a story. So, it's mm -hmm. uh, using social media is a very, very efficient, effective way to to amplify whatever you're thinking. Mm -hmm. And how do you use social media when you're looking for scientists to, to interview? Yeah, so um, a lot of times, uh, well, you know, my reporters are the ones who, have, who are supposed to be doing it, but mm -hmm. like a lot of times I'll, I'll see a Twitter thread that just is interesting to me and I'll forward it to somebody mm -hmm. and say, ooh, mm -hmm. yeah, I wonder if there's a story here. Mm. This person looks like a really good source for the next time we write about you know, whatever subject it is. And that, that's the thing with, you know, I mentioned journalists are on a you know, minute by minute we need to beat the New York Times, we need to do it now. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have long-term lines of coverage, so reporters tend to have a beat that they cover again and again, so it's good for, for scientists to kind of know who's covering your, your field and, to, uh, and that they'll be you know, looking at long-term stories. And so they, they kind of gather experts and gather people who are useful, who they trust, who, who can really explain things. Mm -hmm. I'd love to put in a plug for good old face-to-face -face human communication. <laughs> I think, you know, yeah, obviously right. social right. media is very important. You know, we, we go to religious organizations, we show up at our kids' schools, we stand mm -hmm. on soccer fields. My husband walked down the beach where we live with someone who really had an antagonistic view about biomedical research, and by the time they got back with their dogs, he was asking them questions. Yeah. Oh, nice. I yeah. mean, that's this wonderful moment of change. If, right. if each of us interacted with 10 people who never talked to mm -hmm. a scientist and talked about science and engaging ways that make people want to ask more questions, we're going to spread so much of the joy and wonder and importance of science. That's why I think uh, it's very inter interesting to make lab visits because to yeah. meet oh, people yeah. like mm -hmm. real it's persons that you're going yeah. to talk to, that you're going to interact with, uh, and, uh, I think it's more even more powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's sometimes it's a matter of scale. You, you can reach so many more people on, on social media, yeah. but it is a different kind of communication. Yeah, that's why, as I told you, it's great to combine all these modes. Oh, right. yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And actually, there was just a comment from someone saying that they organized a Twitter chat with five scientists who worked in policy, that's and great. they took, in, took questions from people um, and you know, how they engage in policy. So. And as, as a quick plug to the audience, we're doing our webinar on June 6th on science <laughs> and policy. So <laughs> tune yeah. in for that. It'll be a good one. Um, okay, so, so let's come to, to training. There's been a lot of questions that have come in, uh, you know, um, someone asking what is the older method, so I'm sure you can, you can talk to that. But it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, you know, 
scientists like protocols. They, <laughs> you know, they, they want a, an instruction sheet of how they can do this. Um, and I think they understand the value of training. Um, I think, Matt, you might have mentioned it's not part of our PhD curriculum, at right. the, our graduate school curriculum. Maybe it needs to be, but be. Um, do you have thought, further thoughts on that? Yeah, it's really not. Uh, so in my entire time uh, in school, which I guess has been forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but at least I, it seems that way. Yeah. Uh, I, anyway, I, I've taken one class that was, that was required on communication, and that was uh, an oral communication class that I took in undergraduate, and it was awesome and so important. And, and all it really did was force me to give five or six presentations in front of the class for the first time ever, you know, and I was, you know, 18, 19, whatever it was. And that was so important. But there are two things that I think um, are the community of science, at least in America, is incredibly deficient at formal training in, or acquiring formal training in. That's communication and mentorship. This is not, <laughs> this yeah. is not a webinar about mentorship. This is a webinar about communication. And so, Unfortunately, we have to seek out these opportunities ourselves, and so what that does, and this is I think what's actually unfortunate about it, is that it self-selects for people that are interested in becoming better communicators, which is great for those mm -hmm. people, but everyone can be served by developing their communication skills more, and so I hope that builds itself more into science curriculums at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Mm -hmm. You would you like to talk about the, the older method? Yeah, and what the you older method, do? we combine improvisational theater techniques with message design strategies. We draw on science communication and audience research, and we scaffold our training. We build it up so that you start off with something easy and you get to take on ever more complex situations. We really start with oral communication, but that's fundamental mm -hmm. to any kind of communication is knowing mm -hmm. your audience, knowing your goal, and knowing your tactics. Mm -hmm. What's your strategy and plan going to be? And then being able to try that out and mm -hmm. practice it in a safe space. And this, this happens all over the country? Yeah, and, we and travel all over the world, okay. actually. Um, we do a lot of work um, in New York as well, so people can sign up as individuals and come. Or we go and we do on-site workshops at different institutions, all kinds, mm -hmm. uh, from nonprofits, universities, for-profits. You, you name mm -hmm. it. So scientists could request that yeah. your training program come to the university. Yeah. That's great. Alexia? Oh, same for us. Well, we're offering training courses uh, mm -hmm. on public speaking. For example, how to talk in a conference, how, how to present a research project in less than three minutes. Mm -hmm. People love mm -hmm. uh, to listen to pitches. I mean, like one <laughs> minute, two minute, three minute. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a great format, I think. Uh, we also offer a training course on written communication, uh, how to write a scientific article, a poster, how to use social media. And in fact, uh, we have methods that we teach. And for example, for uh, public speaking, we have a three-step method, which is called a cell method. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and of course, it starts with the message. Um, and I think scientists like that method because uh, it's step by step and it's quite logical mm -hmm. and it, it fits with their, the way they understand uh, things and mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's a very interesting method. Great. So just in the minute that we have left, yeah. I want to ask you all a final question. This is sort of, uh, the, the idea is a take home for the audience out there. And, you know, I think back to my scientific career and, you know, 10, 20 years ago, there were things that I wish I had known. So what do you think, what, what do the scientists, scientists out there not know that they don't know? So what, what, what advice could you give them now where they can go back and say, oh, I'm so pleased that I, I heard that webinar and, and got that piece of information. So we, should we start at the end with oh. Laura? <laughs> I'm used to going last. I usually get to coast. I'm going to change things up. <laughs> yes. um, I think one thing is you, you never know who's listening or who's paying attention, who's watching, who you're reaching. And uh, it may sometimes seem futile that, um, that you're you know, g giving a talk, um, writing something on Medium, doing a, tweeter, <laughs> doing a Twitter storm. Um, but, but keep doing it because you're reaching people in ways you don't know that may pay off or not, um, but you know, that may echo in the world in, in ways you can't anticipate. So mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, look at the long game. Um, be open to communicating in ways that you, you know, it's hard to predict what's going to come of it. 
Mm -hmm. Matt? I guess for me, what I would say to fellow scientists is that most journalists, all journalists really, that I've interacted with are both wonderful and curious, <laughs> wonderfully curious people. And one of the things that, uh, <laughs> that Laura and I were talking about right before the webinar began uh, is that what I've done is when people end up covering anything that I do, I save their names and, and, I, and I have a list. And so that when I'm about to publish something in the future, I, I email them and I say, are you interested in covering this? And one of the things that we mentioned was, is that okay? And you said it's absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, it's wanted. So one of the, my recommendation for scientists would be don't be shy to reach out to journalists mm -hmm. on right. Twitter or Signal or wherever you feel is necessary because that's a great way to get your science out there. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that science communication is a great tool uh, to have to build a community and to get it bigger and bigger and you cannot become a great scientist on your own mm -hmm. so you have yeah. to build your community mm -hmm. and I'll make it short you are better communicators than you think we all <laughs> have to do it it's human and people care and they yeah. want to listen mm -hmm. great well thank you that was fantastic and unfortunately that does bring us to the end of today's webinar um, I'm so grateful to all of today's panelists for giving of their time and expertise uh, Laura Lindenfeld, Alexia Yuknovsky, Matt Savoka, and Laura Helmuth. Uh, please look out for wa more webinars in this series, appearing monthly at webinar.sciencemag.org. Uh, and if you'd like to sign up to receive alerts about upcoming webinars, please go to the link in the resources tab to the right of the video. Again, thank you so much to today's panel um, and to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of today's discussion. Goodbye. Thank you.